0: Okay, so the great thing about being the producer and host and all-around decider of this podcast is that I can do and say whatever I want. The bad news is that I make mistakes and have no one to blame but myself. So somewhere in between traveling over New Year's and leading a birthright trip to Israel and then becoming a fun uncle for the very first time, I neglected to look at the all-important spreadsheet where I've laid out the order of podcast episodes. It turns out that I got ahead of myself. The past two episodes, I've discussed World War I and the Balfour Declaration, but actually there were some things that were supposed to come before that, so I messed up. But the good news is, no harm, history still happened, and we can go back. The bad news is that when we do get back up to World War I and Balfour, you may want to re-listen to those episodes to refresh your memory, and the episode on Balfour I actually need to re-record. So here's the best thing you can do. Just forget everything I've said on those subjects and let's pretend that we haven't quite left the 1800s yet. And anyway, I took down those two episodes from the website, so you are stuck with me in the 19th century, no matter what. So, if you've been a faithful listener for this season on early Israeli history, thank you and sorry. But if you're a new listener, then ignore everything I've just said and welcome aboard for the ride. It's great to have you. I'm your easily distracted host, Jason Harris. And this is Jew I don't know. I would say to young people that we can do every one our share to redeem the world. One of the great Zionist leaders, Chaim Weizmann, said, "A state cannot be created by decree, but by the forces of a people and in the course of generations." Even if all the governments of the world gave us a country, it would only be a gift of words. But if the Jewish people will go build Palestine, the Jewish state will become a reality, a fact. We'll be coming back to him in later episodes, but he was expressing one of the central and surprisingly controversial tenets of the Zionist movement getting Jews to settle in Palestine to build a country and renew Jewish life. It was an enormously difficult task, and the Zionist movement was itself frequently divided over how best to achieve it. The different ideologies of our Zionist tree branches, political, cultural, and labor, meant that each Zionist sect approached the task of settling the land of Israel with different motivations and urgencies. Some tried to build small cities, others wanted only limited agricultural colonies, some wanted to encourage mass immigration, others thought we should just have a few people come slowly over time it's in the early 1900s that we get those places you've heard about and on birthright probably visited places like tel aviv and the kibbutz there were other kinds of settlements by then too and institutions dedicated to acquiring land and wealthy jewish philanthropists dedicated to paying for them looking back on this era as a whole it was an exciting time optimism and building also incredible hardship and disappointment and above all of pioneering spirit One of the great accomplishments of the Zionist movement was to design-think, innovative ways to merge practical needs with the utopian ideologies of people like Theodore Herzl, Ahad Ha'am, A.D. Gordon, and other members of our Zionist tree. In other words, there was intention in what the Zionists were building, and because of that intention and that strength, those institutions, whether they were cities or organizations, a lot of them still exist today. And this is the beginning too of what might be the single greatest theme of Israeli history, running straight through today. Jewish immigration to the Holy Land. How many and who and what they do when they got there and who stays and why. Jewish immigration during the 20th century is both Israel's greatest source of strength. And also, as we'll see in later episodes, a source of conflict between Jews and Arabs and after World War I, Jews and the British. Nearly every issue in modern Israel today whether it's the conflict with the palestinians or arguments over jewish pluralism or political divide between left and right can be rooted in some respect in jewish immigration steigt ab bucher zweiter in tracht tracht in tracht a ganze nah wenn man sinnemen nicht verschämen wenn sinnemen in nicht verschämen In 1909, a 19-year-old woman from Russia named Rachel and her sister Shoshana stepped off a boat in Eretz Yisrael for a short visit to the Holy Land. But they were captivated, and they stayed. They learned Hebrew by hanging around with kindergartners, and Rachel made her way to a women's agricultural school along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Rachel exemplified the immigrant who came to Palestine during what became known as the Second Aliyah, the second major wave of immigration that brought idealistic young Jews seized with a socialist and revolutionary spirit to work the land and escape the privations of Europe. It wasn't necessarily Zionism that brought them to Palestine, but the desire to escape the oppression and poverty of European life. But Rachel, like her fellow Second Aliyah immigrants, didn't come to a utopia. Instead, this was a very rough place of toil and hardship. There was a lack of everything, a lack of food, water, roads, and infrastructure, jobs and industry, healthcare and education. The only thing they had more than enough of was extreme heat and disease. Actually, right near Rachel, another 19-year-old recent arrival who lived nearby, became very close to dying of malaria. But thanks to sheer luck and to the benefit of Jewish history, that young man, David Ben-Gurion, survived. Rachel was a writer a poet, and wrote movingly about both the hardships of agricultural life in Eretz Yisrael, as well as the idealization and romance of the land. In one of her most famous poems, El Artzi, To My Land, written in 1926, she writes, I have not sung to you, my land, Nor have I glorified your name Through deeds of heroism with the spoils of war. Only a tree have my hands planted Along the quiet shores of the Jordan only a path have my feet trodden over the surface of the fields. Indeed, it is very meager. I know this mother. Indeed, it is very meager, the offering of your daughter. Only the sound of the shout of joy on the day that the light shines, only crying in secret for your suffering. This was, in many respects, the classic experience of the second Aliyah Halutzim, the pioneers falling in love with an idealized vision of Eretz Yisrael, measuring yourself by your attachment to the land, describing the land in spiritual totems with phrases like quiet shores and references to trees and the surface of the fields. And yet, there is a melancholy about the great difficulty of this life. Rachel the poetess, as she came to be known, lived it. Stuck in Europe during World War I, she returned to Kibbutz de Ganya in the Sea of Galilee, only to contract tuberculosis. Fearful of the disease, the kibbutz kicked her out, and she spent the rest of her life scratching out a small living in Tel Aviv and writing poetry. She died at the age of 40 in 1931, but her poetry lived on, and Rachel, the poetess, today is an Israeli national hero. While Rachel the poetess stayed in Eretz Yisrael, many tens of thousands of immigrants left. There was a divide between what is known as the old Yishuv and the new Yishuv. Yishuv means settlement, and it refers to the Jewish community in Palestine before Israel was created in 1948. Where I've been using terms like Palestine and Eretz Israel so far in this podcast, I'm going to start using Yishuv a lot more, since it is specific to the Jewish community. Before the 1880s, the old Yishuv consisted of about 25,000 Jews, the vast majority Orthodox, and mostly living in Jerusalem and Svat. These Jews had been in Eretz Yisrael for centuries, and for the most part, they studied Torah and relied on donations from Jews abroad to maintain their lives. They were deeply pious and cared very little for Zionism. Actually, they were pretty much against the whole project altogether. Only God, they felt, could bring about the restoration of the Jewish homeland. Zionism, an entirely human creation, was for them at best a misguided exercise in hubris and at worst a complete abomination of the word of God. So these pious old-timers did not look kindly on the young upstart Jews brimming with ideas who came swooping into Palestine with the first Aliyah, beginning in the early 1880s. They came with idealism and by and large left with disappointment because although this first Aliyah brought around another 25,000 Jews into the land, the majority left within a few years, either returning to Europe or heading off to America. They were disappointed because they couldn't do very much. They had these great dreams about transforming the land and revolutionizing their bodies and their minds and their Jewish spirits with hard labor and productive work, but there was a problem. These people didn't know how to farm. For the most part, The best that they could do was group together small, struggling private farms in the little communities known as moshavot, And for this, they were still dependent on the financial support from Jews back in Europe, and one Jew in particular. If you've been to Tel Aviv, especially on birthright, then you've probably been to Independence Hall, where Israel was declared a state. And a block away, the equally famous, and probably more notorious, Jimmy's, a very popular club for those free nights out on birthright. I more prefer Benedict's across the street because they serve breakfast 24 hours a day, and I can hide out from the Jimmys crowd with my Instagram perfect pancakes and hot chocolate. But the point is that all three of those places are along Tel Aviv's famous Rothschild Street. It's named after Baron Edmund Benjamin James de Rothschild, a French member of the ultra-famous and ultra-wealthy Rothschild banking family. In today's money, he probably spent well over a billion dollars supporting Zionist activities in Palestine, especially the creation of these Moshavot villages. Places like Rishon LeZion, Rosh Pina, Zichron Yaakov, and Petach Tikva were among the first and today most well-known of Rothschild's largesse. He provided things like city services, schools, doctors, and the financial support necessary for the vote to just barely stay afloat. And in a few of them, Like Zichron Yaakov, he developed wineries. I mean, he was French. And although he was a huge supporter of the Zionist movement, he was not a big fan of Herzl, or most of the other Zionist leaders. He thought Herzl was just a political agitator, and he resented any of the other Zionist thinkers trying to impress upon him their ideologies and big plans. These are my colonies, he said, and I shall do what I like with them. But even as he bought up tens of thousands of acres of land and supported these small Moshe vote communities, the effort to turn Jews into farmers in the last two decades of the 1800s was pretty much a bust. A for effort, but we are definitely not gonna build a homeland this way. And so with the turn of the century, new ideas were in order. A new influx of immigrants, the second Aliyah, would bring things like organizations to purchase land, collective farming, and socialism, yes socialism. While Herzl pursued his political Zionism program in Europe, and the cultural Zionists of Ahad Ha'am saw Eretz Israel's the small center of Jewish culture, the labor Zionists would use socialism and the revolutionary idealism of agricultural work to make Zionism into a functioning society. In 1897, a math professor named Zvi Shapira had an idea to create an organization that would raise money to buy up land in Palestine for Jewish settlement. Running with the idea, in 1901, Theodore Herzl proclaimed the creation of the Jewish National Fund. One person stepped forward to offer the very first donation, 10 pounds, in honor of Shapira, who had just died. Herzl made the second donation, his aide made the third, and the Jewish National Fund, the JNF, was up and running. It started with the first purchase of land, 50 acres, in 1903. In 1905, the first trees were planted in honor of Herzl, who had died a year earlier. This, by the way, is why we all are into planting trees in Israel. But it wasn't just about acquiring land. The lack of many organizing institutions in the Yishuv meant that the JNF served as an environmental agency, a city planner, an educational ministry. They built schools, a water authority, and an agricultural research department all at the same time. JNF funded and supported many of Israel's pioneering techniques in crop diversification and water usage. Seems like the Jews were starting to become farmers after all. A hundred years later, as the 20th century turned into the 21st, JNF will have planted more than 250 million trees in Israel, developed over 250,000 acres of land, built a couple hundred reservoirs and dams, built the infrastructure for more than a 1,000 communities, and created several thousand parks. As is often mentioned, Israel is the only country in the world to enter the 21st century with more trees than it had at the start of the 20th. Zionism had sprouted a new tree branch, environmentalism. Now, the second Aliyah proved to be a more consequential wave of immigration than the first, running from the beginning of the 1900s up to World War I in 1914. The second Aliyah brought some 40,000 Jews into Palestine, including Rachel the Poetess and her sister. As with the first Aliyah, most would end up leaving, some after even just a few weeks. The extreme heat, the hard labor, the language barrier, the lack of opportunity, too many birthright participants running around looking for falafel, it drove many of them right back out. But those who stayed became the leaders of the Yishuv, building the institutions that would transform the land and turn the Jewish national homeland later on into the state of Israel. These were the immigrants who most passionately took up Eliezer Ben Yehuda's Hebrew revival, using the old, new language to build a culture around their connection to the Jewish historic homeland. Hebrew songs, Hebrew poetry, Hebrew names. Dovid, that scrawny Jewish kid from the Ukraine, became Barak when he moved to Palestine, meaning lightning, a Jew with powerful muscles and chiseled abs from backbreaking agricultural work under the searing sun, connected to his fellow Jews of the ancient past but these second aliyah immigrants were also determined to build more than just agricultural communities they wanted industry and factories in jewish neighborhoods and cities in other words they wanted to go beyond the high-minded ideals of labor zionism which we'll get more into next episode and move forward with the practical approaches to building the jewish homeland and the leader to get them there a man we might consider the chief doer of the zionist movement in the yishuv stepped off the boat in haifa in 1907 To have a look around. Arthur Rupin is the Jewish leader you have never heard of, but he created two of Israel's most famous and lasting institutions: Tel Aviv and the Kibbutz. Talk about two things that couldn't be farther apart on the ideological spectrum. A German academic. Active in the Zionist movement, Arthur Rupin was sent to Palestine in 1907 to report back on the conditions of the Yishuv and its capacity for further settlement. A year later, he moved there permanently, with a mandate from the Zionist leadership to take charge of the practical necessities of building Jewish industry and settlement. Working with the Jewish National Fund, he became the Yishuv's main buyer of land. He believed that the most essential element in the creation of a Jewish state then was to buy land and settle it as quickly as possible by any means possible. Urban, rural, it didn't matter, as long as the Jewish settlement could be economically viable, safe, and thriving. In 1909, Arthur Rupin got a JNF loan of 10,000 pounds for a small group of people to create a Jewish suburb next to the ancient port of Jaffa. They called their society Chuzat Bayit, meaning homestead, this was not the first Jewish neighborhood outside Jaffa. Several had been sprouting up since the 1880s, but this one was going to be planned, organized, and most of all, done with a clear ideological intention. The Ahuzatbait Society wanted to create the kind of small city that they had left behind in Europe, except this one would be Hebrew in nature. It would adopt modern urban aesthetics, and it would be a center for Zionist culture. They even made up marketing brochures, advertising that the future city would have roads and sidewalks and electricity, and each house would have running water and sewage piping. This was not going to be some squalid agricultural settlement up in the burning furnace of northern Israel. As the scholar Daniel Gordis notes in his recent book on the history of Israel, the idea was to create a Vienna on the Mediterranean. And so, with Arthur Rupin's land purchases in hand, 66 families gathered on a beach outside Jaffa on April 11th 1909 and drew seashells to determine who got what plot of land there were white seashells and gray seashells on the white were written the family name on the gray was the property number you drew out the two shells and mazaltov here's your plot of land they dug a well for the water built 66 homes and proclaimed the start of their city ahuzat beit but that name didn't stick around for too long, which is good because it sounds really awkward. A year later, the tiny town was given a name to reflect the sense of both the ancient layered past as well as the Jewish renewal it was intended to bring about. Its name came from the book of Ezekiel in the Hebrew Bible, where it was written of the Jews living in Babylon, Then I came to them of the captivity at Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv was also the Hebrew title given to Herzl's 1902 book, alt Old New Land, A tel is an ancient mound which covers layers of archeological evidence of past settlements, and aviv means spring. So Tel Aviv, Spring Hill, even though it was built on a sand dune. So the second aliyah of immigration, the beginning of the 20th century, did bring in some of these high-minded, bourgeois European Jews looking to recreate the urban European landscapes that they took for high culture and elite intellectualism. But mostly the Second Aliyah brought in immigrants to work the land. Agriculture was the dominant industry. But these immigrants weren't coming just to farm. They were coming to transform themselves through work, through labor, to renew the Jewish spirit by direct connection with nature. And they brought something else with them socialism. And they took this socialism and they merged it with hard labor and they created Israel's perhaps most famous institution, the kibbutz. That's next episode. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then.